on air across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome to the seventh generation on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city in South Cambridgeshire. I'm Nick Skelton. Episode 24. What's your paw print? The environmental impact of pets. At a recent Natural Cambridgeshire online event, an offhand comment from a Wildlife Trust speaker got us thinking. He was talking about how great it was that more people had used wildlife reserves when allowed to during lockdown, but also the downside of the damage that this more intense use was causing, and specifically how people's one dog walk a day, especially given the recent increase in dog ownership, could potentially harm these delicate areas. We'd noticed more people out walking with dogs, and we'd never thought about this aspect. And was there more to it? What impact is the boom in pet ownership, especially in dogs and cats, having on the environment overall? A bit of research revealed that the answer was a big one. A February 2021 article in The Independent made the claim that pets can emit twice the carbon emissions of our home's electricity and kill up to 200 million wild prey in the UK every year. And while these numbers are subject to scrutiny, the range of ways pets add to environmental damage is wide. And then there's the impact of meat, often unsustainably produced, in their pet food, given that humans are being asked to consume much less meat and dairy. Equally worrying is the mass consumption they're driving, from pet costumes, to decorated bowls, to fluffy beds, to toys of every description, And then there's the chemical impact, from cat litter to worm and flea treatments, vermicides as they're somewhat creepily called, which also kill wildlife. So we decided to look into this question. We interviewed a biologist from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB, about the impact of pet animals on wild creatures. And we also interviewed the owner of a testing lab for animal parasites on reducing the impact of worm treatments. And we discuss whether pets have become a luxury item driving consumption with animal geographer Dr Philip Howell of the University of Cambridge. And finally, our reporter Sheena Mooney did some research into the more sustainable products that are out there for pets. So first up, here's my interview with the biologist Stephanie Moran of the RSPB. And I started off by asking her to give us an overview of what the RSPB does. The RSPB has been around for over 100 years. It's a fantastic organisation. Um, it was founded um, to protect birds from the feather trade. I don't know how many people know that, but p- birds used to be killed for feathers in hats, for example. Um, so it was founded as a campaigning organisation. And we still do a lot of that today, but we've also branched out into all kinds of different things. So we have um, over 200 nature reserves that you know we welcome visitors to and that we protect protect purely for sort of wildlife conservation and you know the clue is in the name really we do a lot of work with birds um, but actually we don't only work on birds we work on wildlife as a whole the whole um, ecosystem and how important that is to protect all kinds of different wildlife we have um, over a million members to which we're extremely grateful to each and every one of them because not only does that provide us with the money that we need to be able to look after the wildlife um, in the way that we do but it also means that we have this fantastic voice that can speak for nature 
we have a, a department called the Conservation Science Department. We actually have a huge amounts of research that the RSPB does looking at a variety of different things, looking at um, you know, what's causing the declines of birds and other wildlife, what we can do to help. And so this research is absolutely vital to everything that we do. We're what we call an evidence-based organisation. So we look at the science and we respond to that science and it really helps us to do the right thing for the wildlife at the right time. Now, we know that pet ownership, especially cats and dogs, has increased a great deal during the lockdown period and that in terms of people's mental and physical well-being, this has had many positive effects. But how are all these additional pets affecting the natural environment? So let's start off with cats. Is their impact on our native birds really bad? Yes, it's a really interesting question. And people see cats killing wildlife all the time, whether you're a cat owner or your neighbour has a cat or you just sort of read about it. Everybody knows that cats can and do kill wildlife and they kill significant numbers of wildlife. Whether that impacts the populations of these birds is a slightly different question. So there are around 8 to 10 million cats in the UK. The vast majority of those cats are in urban areas. And if you look at which species of birds are declining most, um, and which we're really particularly concerned about, actually the common garden birds, blue tits, robins, blackbirds, etc., are actually not declining. So they are actually increasing in number. And those are the birds that cats are much more likely to kill because they're there. And that's the ones that the cats come across. The other thing to bear in mind is that cats domesticated cats at least they kill whatever the easiest thing is to kill so it's extremely likely that the birds that they're killing would have probably been not survived through to adulthood anyway and actually that's why birds have so many chicks because they actually only need one or two um, to make it through so as an animal lover I you know I love cats I love birds it can be quite a sort of moral dilemma as an animal lover it's obviously not very pleasant to see cats killing birds and there are some things that I can come on to in a second that people can do to try and reduce that. But in terms of whether cats are affecting populations of birds, currently there isn't any evidence that that is actually the case. There are two birds commonly seen in gardens that are of conservation concern, meaning that they're, you know, they're declining or we're worried about them. And those are house sparrows and starlings. But there is evidence that shows that the reasons for their declines are actually not related to cat predation. They're, they're related because they're also farmland birds. So they're re- related to loss of habitat, changing farmland practices and other issues. So, yes, we want to reduce the number of animals that cats kill, of course. But we don't think that cats are actually causing the population decline of, of any species. Great. Oh, well, that's good to hear, I must say. So what advice have you got for cat owners in order to help reduce predation? So there's, there's evidence that putting a bell on a cat's collar, as long as it's a quick release one so that the cat is safe, that reduces animal captures by about a third. So that's quite significant if your cat is a prolific hunter. If you don't have a cat, but you don't like cats coming into your garden and, and killing birds there, there are a few products that you can get that deter cats, but don't harm them. And um, But also it can be about where you site your bird feeder and your nest boxes. So you want to put them up high. You want to make sure that they're at least two metres away from from bushes so that cats can't sort of lurk and surprise them and also doing things like planting spiky bushes like holly for example around the base of bird feeders can also put cats off so there are a few things that you can do 
as a cat owner, vast majority of cat kills happen around dawn and dusk um, in the breeding season and in midwinter. So basically at times where birds are more likely to be out trying to find food. So if you can keep your cats in around dawn and dusk and also around the time of year, sort of from now onwards, really, from the next few weeks where the chicks are likely to be leaving the nest and are particularly vulnerable, then that can also help. Oh, that's really good advice. Thanks ever so much, Steph. Now, statistics are showing that visits to nature reserves are up significantly during lockdown. And of course, that goes hand in hand with all the new dog owners taking their pets out for their exercise. Would that have an effect on birds and other animals too? Yes, unfortunately it does. You know, the RSPB and other um, organisations that have nature reserves are absolutely delighted that for all the absolutely terrible time that we've had over the last year, actually a connection to nature has been one of the things that people have really found. Especially if you remember in the first lockdown, we were only allowed out for an hour a day for exercise and people really wanted to make the most of that time. You know, people have heard birdsong more than before because the traffic's been down and that is amazing and we would love for that to continue. Unfortunately, obviously the downside of that is that we've had a sudden rush of a lot of people all at the same time enthusiastically wanting to see nature when you know when our nature reserves were closed particularly in the first lockdown the wildlife got used to the not being people there so you know we had situations where birds were nesting basically on footpaths because there hadn't been any footfall there you know, people think of them nesting in bushes and trees but significant numbers of birds actually nest on the ground and um, so can be quite easily disturbed at any time between March and September, particularly when birds are nesting, it's really important to keep dogs on leads. And at all times of year, it's important to keep dogs under control, but particularly in the nesting season. And also pay attention to signs. And so on some nature reserves, there'll be some areas where dogs are very welcome and then other areas where dogs shouldn't be taken precisely to protect the wildlife that's there. So I suppose maybe having areas that you can let the dog off the lead is something that nature reserves, etc. should be thinking about. Is that something the RSPB has thought of? Nature reserves are there first and foremost for, for wildlife conservation, but we obviously want to bring that wildlife to people in, in the safest possible way. So it really depends on the nature reserve. So it's worth just checking before you travel, if you have a dog, what the rules are and, and where dogs can go and where dogs can go off lead and on lead. But overall, however well behaved a dog, they are obviously quite frightening to birds and birds can be very easily disturbed. And of course, we would ask that people come to our nature reserves and out in the countryside that they are respectful and, you know, take their litter home and, and all of the rest of it, because that can also be really harmful to wildlife. OK, I understand. Let's look at a, a trickier problem to solve. Modern advice is that animals need to be wormed every few months. And the most popular treatment for fleas is those drops that you put behind the ears on the neck and on the back. I think it's every three months. Now, I understand that both of these can create problems for birds and other creatures. Is this something that you've been looking at? Yes, it's actually an emerging problem. So we didn't necessarily know that much about this previously. But, you know, listeners may have heard about a group of pesticides called neonicotinoids. They've been in, in the media quite recently around their use in farmland. And they've actually been banned across the EU for use in farmland now, which is great because they had a particularly detrimental impact on bees. But what is lesser known is that a lot of this on-spot flea treatment that you're talking about is actually neonicotinoid treatment. So it's the same chemicals that have just been banned across the EU for use on farmland because of their detrimental impact to insects is one of the most commonly used flea treatments for our pets. 
there's around 10 million dogs, 11 million cats in the UK, with about 80% of those receiving flea treatment, regardless of whether it's needed. That's a significant number. And so research that came out towards the end of last year showed that in 20 rivers that were sampled, 99% of them contained bipronil, which is one of these neonicotinoids at a significantly higher level than is known to be safe. So um, our rivers are absolutely full of these insecticides, which are designed to kill insects. You know, they're designed to kill pests in farmland and they're designed to kill fleas. But of course, they also kill insects that they're not designed to kill. So we are very worried about this. And government regulation around the use of these chemicals in farmland is you know, relatively strict, but there is just not the same level of regulation in terms of using it in pets. And not all of these products even require a vet visit or a prescription. You can buy them in supermarkets online. You can just put them on your pets. So it is a huge issue. There's another type of neonicotinoid, and this study looked at that as well. And one flea treatment of a medium-sized dog with this chemical contains enough to kill 60 million bees. So this is incredibly toxic. Now, that's not to say that our beloved pets should be protected from things that harm them. And also, nobody wants a flea infestation in their house. So there are two things, really. One is organisations um, looking at this and universities, you know, really want the government to take action on actually regulating this properly, not allowing it to just be bought from a supermarket, potentially changing the advice from vets, which is use this stuff when it's needed, not what we call prophylactically, which is just using it all the time, just in case. As humans, we don't take medicine just in case all of the time. We take it when it's needed. And so vet medication really should be considered in the same way. And in terms of if you are a pet owner and you're choosing to use these on the back of the net treatments, the problem that we're finding is that it's getting into water courses, either through washing pets and the water going down the plug hole, or also from dogs jumping in rivers and swimming. So potentially one thing that pet owners could actually do is for the few days following putting on the treatment, they don't bath their pet um, and they don't let them jump in rivers. That sounds like good advice. Like a lot of people, I've got bird feeders in my garden. I really like watching the birds. In fact, I can see them from here. And it's great in the morning to see them out there feeding. A lot of bird food comes in packaging. Is this something that the RSPB has looked into? All of the listeners will be aware of the, you know, the big issue, particularly with single-use plastic. And RSPB as a wildlife conservation organisation feels really passionately about this issue and the fact that this single-use plastic, it, it takes so much energy to produce. It's used once, it's discarded, and it causes huge issues in our oceans and for wildlife. So yes, we're looking at the best way we can do it. And one of the issues is that, of course, generally production has become reliant on this as a, as a product, plastic, and you know things like shelf life. So we need to all work together really, really quickly to try and work out better packaging methods that still allow us to not waste things because plastic does a very good job at stopping things going off for example but actually there are alternatives the RSPB sells lots of bird food and what one of the things we've been looking at is making sure that if we do use plastic it's recyclable which is really important but that's almost the last thing we before that we want to make sure that anything that can be stopped being plastic and replaced with compostable material or paper cardboard etc can do that so feeding birds is it's helpful for the birds it's wonderful for our mental health and we would encourage people to be doing it but 
as with all of the things that we choose to buy, you know, looking for places where you can buy things with minimal or no plastic and certainly recyclable materials is something that everybody could do. Oh, yeah, of course. Biological anthropologists have argued that some animals, and especially pets like dogs and cats, may have partly domesticated themselves because there were advantages to being confident around humans. If true, it's turned out to be a very successful strategy. A study by the American Academy of Sciences found that humans and domesticated animals, including livestock, accounted for 96% of the biomass of all mammals on Earth. Now that's a pretty shocking statistic. As a scientist, how do you feel about this? So, I mean, we've talked a lot already today about the impact um, that pets can have on the environment and some of the things that pet owners can do, because, you know, as you said, Nick, um, you know, pets are extremely good for mental health. A lot of that domestication then is livestock. So the meat that we eat or the dairy products that we eat or the eggs that we eat. And there's lots of evidence that this is causing huge environmental well, catastrophe, really. Livestock contributes massively to climate change, massively to deforestation, to clear the land. And so what we would really advocate is a less but better approach to eating animal products. So basically reduce the amount of meat and dairy products that you eat by as much as you feel you're able to. And that will in itself have a really big impact on your environmental footprint. And if and when you do choose to eat meat and dairy products, have a look at where it comes from. There's absolutely no doubt that as humans, we all have an impact on the environment. And there's really, that's just sort of the way it is. But I think being much more conscious about what our personal footprint is and the choices that we make and the things that we buy and the things that we eat is going to be the way that we can all really sort of work together to tackle both crises. There's a climate crisis and there's a biodiversity crisis and they are very interlinked. So making these choices can really help. Thanks, Steph. That was Stephanie Moran, who works for the RSPB here in Cambridge. Online, on digital and on FM. This is... Cambridge 105 Radio. Yes, you're listening to the seventh generation here on Cambridge 105 Radio, the show about everything environmental in our region. And this month we're looking at pets. We've gone pet crazy here in the UK. According to the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, a total of 3.2 million households in the UK have acquired a pet since the start of the pandemic. And a huge boom in pet products has followed. That's concerning. But do the benefits of pet ownership outweigh the costs? Why are people so attracted to pets? To help us put this into context, Michelle Golder contacted Dr Philip Howell of the University of Cambridge, a geographer who has spent some time looking into the relationship of people and their pets throughout history. I have a confession to make. I'm doing this interview from home with my two dogs at my feet. Hopefully they won't start barking, but I can't guarantee it. I say that guiltily because I do think that an important part of solving the environmental emergency involves all of us reducing consumption if we can, and especially those of us who could afford more consumption. And until recently, I would have said I was doing reasonably well. I've cut down on a lot of things, plastic, fossil fuels, changed to a green energy supplier, got rid of one of our cars, but we got a new dog in the lockdown. And it's incredible what 
dog ownership and, and pet ownership in general has turned into recently. Now, I love dogs. I want to put that out there. I love all animals. And I don't want to live in a world without them. But I'm fighting guilt and temptation all the time now. In the 70s, when I had my first dog, she had no toys. She got a tennis ball now and then. She was fed dry food. There were three or four brands available. We didn't pick up the poo. Now it's Petflix TV, deer antler chews, squeaky toys by the dozens, poo bags, which are supposedly biodegradable, but I have my doubt. And I feel like this is new. So when I started thinking about this and I discovered the research that our next guest had done, I thought this could be really interesting. Dr. Philip Howell is a lecturer in historical geography at the University of Cambridge. But one of the fields he's been researching for a few years is animal geography. Welcome Dr. Howell to the seventh generation. And the first thing I want to ask you is what animal geography is and what are some of the topics you've been looking at? Thanks very much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to speak to you and to, to a larger audience than I, I normally speak to. So animal geography. Geography is a weird subject. Not everyone knows what geography is. Even geographers don't know what geography is or it's difficult to articulate. But geography has always been about the relationship with the environment and relationships with other animals are part of that. But I'm also a cultural and historical geographer, which means I'm interested in the ways in which relationships with animals have changed over time and also what it means for our societies. And animal geography, as it's emerged in the last 20 years or so, is a field which is really looking at the place of animals, both literally in terms of where they are. Are they in the home? Are they in the streets? Are they in the wild? But also culturally, what they mean to us and whether we, for instance, whether we accept animals in the home. Not every culture in the world does that. Not every community in the world does that. And whether we accept them in certain places or in other places. If we don't like where they are, we call them pests. If we like them and we generally accept them, well, we can call them pets or other terms. Is there a specific sort of topic that you've been looking at that we can share? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's a surprise to me, and I didn't think I'd end up in this particular situation, but I'm, I think of myself as a slightly mockingly, as a noted expert on the Victorian dog. So dogs are my topic, and I'm interested in the ways in which our relationship, at least in the West, with the dog has evolved over actually centuries rather than thousands of years. Well, I think the Victorians are a great place to start because a lot of modern consumption, I think, started in the Victorian age. And I'm very, very curious to know, how is it different now? So how were pets in previous eras in the UK fed, housed and kept healthy? Well, it comes with the territory of being interested in a particular period that you tend to think everything changes in that period. And I take the view that, of course, there are lots of changes more recently, but I take the view that the culture of the pet that we are familiar with, at least in the modern West, it's growing, of course, in places like China, especially now, and Brazil and uh, South America. But the culture of the pet really, I think, changes in the 19th century. And if, if, if I really want to 
take risks, I'll say that it changes in the 1860s. For instance, you have the production of dedicated pet food from 1860 or right about 1860. And that is worldwide. That's a hundred billion US dollar industry. And that has its origins in 1860, maybe 1861 with a pet food manufacturer, Sprats, became part of Spillers in 1960. But we think of pet food as a very, very normal, it's a huge industry, a very, very big operation. But that is no older in its dedicated form than 1860. And there are other things. You get the first dog shows, the first pedigree pet shows, you get the first dog shelters. You get those things right about the middle of the 19th century. Animal welfare, pet welfare becomes a concern in a specialist way in that period of time. And do you know what was in that pet food, that 1860 dog food? What was it made from? Was it waste products? Was there a concern about the health of the animal or the health of the environment? Uh, it's a great question. And uh, I knew it was meat, vegetables and grain. But I googled it, of course. And if you want to be specific about it, Spratt's famous patent X meat fibrined dog biscuit or dog cake, I think uh, that's what Spratt's called it. That has beetroot in it, it has meat, it has vegetables, and it has wheat. So uh, that wouldn't really surprise an industrial dog biscuit manufacturer today. Uh, with the addition of perhaps of some supplements, some vitamin supplements, it'd be much the same. So you've got grains, you've got vegetables, and you've got meat. And the rumor was that the meat was buffalo, sort of imported, and, and that was not a meat that was ending up on Victorian Worthy's tables. There was always a little bit of suspicion of what kind of meat was being used to flavor this dog biscuit. But it's a dog biscuit. And the very first one of those, 1860, Spratt's Patent X. And it became a very, very famous brand through to the early and mid 20th century. I want to maybe come back to food a bit later, but I'm also curious about things like toys and clothing for dogs and all the other products that we see on the market shelves and on the internet today. Was there that marketplace? I don't think so. And I think that is something of a much, much more recent vintage. So things like, you know, the Kong, the food toy, if you've ever used that with your, your dogs as enrichment and get them to work a little bit harder for their dog food, then that, I understand, was invented in the 1970s. And I don't know of any more dedicated dog toys before then. And as for dog jackets or the kind of fancy dress that uh, I don't know whether you're one of those people, Michelle. Uh, uh, <laughs> I am uh, not. Uh, but, but those things are very much more of our own vintage. So, so those, that sort of pet accessory business, I don't think had a longer life than back end of the 20th century. So socially, today we have a lot of controversy about pet ownership. Some people are only just becoming aware of it. I've become aware of it fairly recently. So there's the question of we're supposed to be cutting down on meat as humans for the planet, and yet we're feeding it to our animals. Should we be feeding them something else? There's the question of impacts of animals on the natural environment, as we're discussing elsewhere in the, today's program. 
what were the issues in the past? Were there social issues that people talked about? Like, for example, we're feeding buffalo to humans. What about poor people or, or that sort of thing? Was that going on back there? Is this a new phenomenon? That general question isn't that new. And especially, you, you will imagine that in times of stress, like the First World War and the Second World War, feeding food to animals becomes a particular concern. The, the idea that this is wasted when there are children in need, for instance. This is something that is regularly visited upon pet owners, that this is food which could be used for human beings, not just in your own country, but around the world. And this has a particular edge with the environmental crisis. It's not quite fair, and I'm going to relieve you of a little bit of your guilt, Michelle. I, I think uh, very often it wasn't the same Food. There was always ladies' lap dogs which were singled out for a program. A few might be getting fed salmon or something, but most pet dogs and indeed cats were being fed food which was not fit for human consumption. Cats, for instance, in the Victorian age, there was a figure who was known as the cat's meat man. Uh, it could be a woman, could be children, but they would come around from door to door with the meat that could not be sold to humans, it was, it was past its sell by date, it wasn't necessarily the healthiest, but these scraps and offal and offcuts were sold for pets. And so there wasn't a direct competition. That doesn't mean that this question didn't tend to come up. And people who hate pets, and it's typically they hate the pet owner more than the pet, tended to reach for these arguments in order to say that pet owners are selfish or they're antisocial or whatever. William Gladstone, the great prime minister, when he was chancellor of the Exchequer, he said, I think in the 1860s that you could divide the population of Britain into two, those who keep dogs, there are other pets, of course, those who keep dogs and those who hate them. And there was no in between. So there's always been an undercurrent of argument against pets and against pet owners for being selfish. And this in an age of environmental stress, this takes on an added dimension. It does indeed. But then we have to add in the COVID question. So during lockdown, pet ownership has become, for some people, a lifesaver. I read a great article about this, about a family who really felt that they lost three members of their family, got the new puppy that had brought in a new element of love and what a, you know, a dog uniquely brings to a family. And this mum thought it had saved her family. So what about that? Is that a new phenomenon, the role of pets in mental health and in connecting people with nature and getting them outside? I think the answer to that is yes. There was a, an earlier variant of this when a pet ownership is seen as good for society. It tends to focus on the fact that pets as part of the family, that they were good for children. That growing up in a family where you have to look after dogs or cats, could be other animals. This is often thought to be educationally, this is good for the child because the child gets to learn about nature, but it also gets to learn about caring for other creatures and indeed being kind to other creatures. So they weren't seeing it in terms of mental health, but at least some people from the Victorian age onwards, if not earlier, were keen to promote pet ownership, even down to the poorest because it taught them good things. In terms of COVID, yes, the sort of pandemic puppy 
syndrome. I think this is very heartfelt and I know people who have found a lot of sustenance from their, their older pets or their new pets during lockdown. And it, it's almost certainly helping them. Some of the claims for pet ownership are, it's a little bit difficult, to be honest. We all tend to cherry pick the data and think that pets are good for us. They probably are, but, but the jury is still out on a lot of these things. In my argument, my personal argument is that it exposes me to animal consciousness in a way that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to and which is so different from human consciousness, you know, the way animals are in the moment. That is what helps me more than anything. I mean, I do have a great relationship with my dogs, but it's that sort of reminder that there's not just a human way of living. There's also an animal way of living. Sure, uh, absolutely. And uh, the people would say the same thing about bird song and hearing the birds in your garden or your neighborhood and the like. In that sense, not just pets, but living in a world with other animals, with other species is going to do us all a lot of help. Okay, but then there's the downside, which you've, you've touched on a little bit with the ladies with their lap dogs that particularly got picked on in the Victorian era. We seem to be in this era where pets have become a luxury item where pedigreed or, or certain mixed breeds have become so expensive that they're now a black market item of trade and where toys and luxury beds and Netflix for pets, pet flicks, it's out of control, this sort of pet related consumption. Are we compensating for what we've missed out on during COVID or is it something to do with the stress of modern living? What, what do you think is going on there? It's a great question, and your listeners might think that so-called experts like myself might have reached a conclusion about this after all these years. And the sort of animal history and animal studies community, we all know of the arguments for why pet keeping emerged at a particular time. Some people have said, well, of course, it's a compensation for the fact that there were more people in cities, they were further away from nature, and a pet is like a houseplant. It's a substitute for a nature that is somewhat further away than it used to be. Some people have argued that pets are substitutes for children, uh, and some of the argument against pet owners has always been that, well, all this attention should be lavished on children or if you're, if you're a lady with a lapdog, it should go to your husband you know, rather than anything else. There's a very, very clear misogynistic element to criticism of pet ownership, and that's never gone away. Some people will say that it's about the confusion of modernity and the stresses of modern society. Probably all those things come into the mix. But my take on this is that it's a bit strange to be thinking that affection for animals is an oddity something that we need to explain or that it has a core. Without naturalizing this completely, there is an affection and an interest and an empathy with, with animals that we have that's come out in every society that's ever existed. That doesn't mean that, you know, dressing up your dogs for Halloween is, I'm going to say, normal. It's perfectly fine. But the amount of consumption that is dedicated, that, that is something which comes from the fact that a commercial society, that the market will get us to spend on the things we care about, whether that's our children, whether that's our children's education, 
whether it's the family holiday that you sort of say, well, I'm doing this for the family. A commercial society will find ways of targeting what we care about. There it is. So that has little to do with the pets, I think. Little to do with the animals themselves, and it's got everything to do with the kind of society that we're a part of. So my, my take on this is let's not single pet the animals themselves or even pet ownership out from a whole series of things that we clearly consume too much of all sorts of things. And pet ownership and pet culture is just one part of that. That's an excellent point. And, and that's relieved some of my guilt. I mean, I, I do find I'm more vulnerable to consumption aimed at my pets than I am to consumption aimed at myself. So I have to keep reminding myself, this is not about the pet. They are trying to target me. My pets are fine. They're happy. They don't need the special bed. But one of the issues that comes up in the environmental movement is the whole question of whether we should be keeping animals at all especially within the vegan movement, the idea of exploiting animals is, any sort of animals is, people have very, very negative and strong feelings about that. And I find this especially interesting in relation to dogs, because there are some theories that they've actually domesticated themselves in some sense over our long relationship with them. And does that influence your view at all? Do you have a take on that? Yes, I do. It takes us into territory far, far removed from the Victorian age. But in terms of where that relationship came from between humans and dogs, dogs probably did self-domesticate. They associated certain benefits from being in the vicinity of human beings. But I think it's true to say that human beings have self-domesticated to the dog as well. So they, they have habituated together. And whatever the situation, humans and dogs are tightly knit together, not necessarily as pets, but dogs are part of human societies and humans are part of neighborhoods and places that include animals. The normal dog is the street dog. There are overwhelmingly more street dogs than there are pet dogs. So I think the idea that we can, the technical term is separation, the idea that we can separate from animals like dogs to me, seems unrealistic. And we live in an urbanizing world, and there are going to be more street dogs, there are going to be more relationships between people and dogs, not necessarily as pets, but they are part of our world, and we are part of their world. And I think we have to accept that that's what the future is going to be. Thank you so much. That's been a really interesting conversation. Philip Powell. Thank you very much, Michelle. Give your dogs a hug. The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. Thank you, Dr Philip Howell of the University of Cambridge for that interesting take on the relationship of people and their pets. As Stephanie Moran of the RSPB mentioned earlier in the programme, one of the impacts of keeping animals that most people never think about is the environmental effects of treatments for worms and fleas. Preventative or prophylactic treatment has become the norm. That is, treating animals every month to three months, whether they need it or not. But is that the best approach? Our reporter Sarah Strachan interviewed one of the founders of Westgate Labs, Claire Shand, to help us understand why testing before treating makes a difference to protecting both the environment and the treated animal. And after reading a blog by David Rumble at the Wildlife Trust called Trojan Horses and Cows and Cats and Dogs, we've been finding out more about pets and parasites. 
fleas and worms and the effects of chemicals used for deworming and defleeing our companions and other animals. So our next guest on the show is something of an expert in all things wormy and dewormy. I'm joined by Claire Shand, who is Director of Marketing and Communications at Westgate Labs, and she's an SQP in animal medicines. So Claire, perhaps I can ask first, what is an SQP? SQP is a funny terminology, and I think we've got one foot still in the SQP and one in what they're calling now a registered animal medicines advisor, which actually is a much better term for what we do because we are there to advise animal owners on specific over-the-counter medicines so rather than having to go to a vet or a pharmacist you can go to your local store and over-the-counter get those important worming and flea treatments. I'm always intrigued by how people got into doing what they do so how did you get into the world of animal parasites? like all the best things by accident probably we had animals and horses specifically when I was a kid and we live in rural Northumberland wormer resistance has been a thing in sheep since sort of early 90s really and we were hearing about that and looking at parallels to horses so my sister and I decided that we would take some horse poo to our local vet and get it tested and see what came back it took weeks to get a result there was no guidance or anything that came back with the result of 100 eggs per gram that we got. So we sort of picked our way along that for a while and thought it was interesting. And uh, my dad is a scientist and a bit of an entrepreneur. And he was like, oh, this is quite interesting what you're doing, because actually, when you look at it from the outside, it makes no sense to give these drugs on a routine basis without actually understanding what you're treating. So he was the one who went away and researched the modified McMaster technique and we started to do that at home with our own animals and then he was interested in what was going on in the wider population so he would come with us to the shows we would be riding in and he'd be creeping around the collecting ring picking up poo from other horses to test when we got home it was mega embarrassing at the time I can remember but we brought them home and tested them and they had thousands of eggs per gram and these were like good standard county shows that we were at and lovely looking animals and there was no way then of obviously getting in touch with the owners to say actually you might have a problem here so that was a sort of the first eye-opening step into the world of horse parasites and my dad put this little advert in the back of horse and hound in February of 1999 to ask if anybody wanted their horses poo analysed to see if there was worms and a slow trickle began and that's how Westgate started. So we set up the first lab in the still room on the west side of the farm, the Westgate, which is why it got its name. And the office was on the kitchen table in the farmhouse. And from those tiny beginnings, we've now got one of the piggeries is renovated. We've got a purpose-built lab in there. We test thousands of horses, majority horses, every year, um, give lots of advice about worming and how people can be more sustainable with parasite control. So from tiny acorns, really, it's it's grown. And we um, attended virtually a European conference this year in parasitology with some of the real experts from across Europe attending and they were really talking then about how there are only two countries in Europe where targeted worming for horses is a thing Denmark being one where you can't buy a wormer unless you have a prescription from your vet and the UK 
And no one can really understand why that is in the UK. But actually, we've been now doing this 22 years and been the solid voice to educate horse owners from what to start with was a bizarre concept for most people. And now is kind of the norm. So British Equine Veterinary Association, they've been promoting it as best practice since 2010-ish. Yeah, it feels really good to be part of that movement and of making a real difference to horse health and to animal health in general. So you support owners by offering a targeted approach to worm control, is that right? Yeah, it's evidence-based control. So it's about not blanket worming, responsible worming. That's what we're promoting. So not using these drugs indiscriminately because at the end of the day, they're poisons. So you want to only be going in with them where you absolutely need them. And that means testing first and only giving the treatment to the animals who need it and then choosing the very best drug to treat that specific burden and then helping the horses to be healthy, but also really minimising the use of those chemicals. A lot of owners will be aware of the potentially negative impact of using those worms. As you say, they're toxic or they're poisons, but it's also obviously the impact on the environment. Anti-worming medicines in horses, particularly like the invermectins, potentially have an impact on wild invertebrates. So the insects that recycle the nutrients from dung in the soil and put it back into the food chain. So if they're essentially pesticides and they're causing death of dung flies and dung beetles, that's this class of drugs. What are they used for? Yeah, it's the avermectins that are predominantly responsible for that. A class of drugs that was developed through the 80s and 90s. So we've got the older style chemicals that we use, which were used on routine dosage. So the older chemicals um, like fenbendazole and pyrantel that came in in the 1960s and 70s, like they totally revolutionised animal health don't get me wrong before we had anything to treat worms and parasites in these animals they were getting sick and dying regularly from parasite infection so they're fantastic to have but when they first came in the pharmaceutical companies said right worm religiously every eight weeks with these drugs and then you'll not have parasite problems but what we didn't realize it was that the worms just like antibiotics would develop resistances to these drugs and so that's what we've started to see. So we've had to develop new drugs, you know, as time's gone on, because the old ones have lost their effectiveness. So the ivermectin and moxidectin um, for horses specifically came in in this through the 80s and 90s. And they were the new wonder drugs that were then effective, where the old ones had become less so. But Unlike the older style chemicals, they're actually a lot more toxic to dung beetles and other invertebrates. And so I've had this knock on impact of really kind of impacting the flora fauna of the fields and also in watercourses as well. They're very poisonous in those too. So what's the advice do you give customers in terms of using these medicines? First up, we're really trying to minimise the use of them and for lots of different reasons, resistance obviously being a big one. But we're also looking long term at the efficacy of the drugs. So keeping them as effective medication and also then minimising their impact on the environment. There's not really a great deal of information out there of what those metabolites that are from the wormers in the dung do, how they perform, how do they break down? 
you know, what's the sort of longevity of them in the soil and then the potential impact, even if you've got them gathered in a muck heap or whatever. So, you know, we just don't know a lot of this information. So really where we're at is trying to minimise the use and target them very specifically, but there's not a great deal more known about pasture management and how to minimise their impact. So we've talked a lot about horses, but you don't offer tests for cats and dogs, but is that something that owners could look into? Definitely. Yeah, it's something that we're seeing increasing demand for. And there are other laboratories that are popping up to offer them. We're not set up for cats and dogs. You can get zoonos from them, um, which is infections from them that spread to humans. And you so you have to have specific equipment to deal with that that we don't have. So I guess it's something that people should ask their vets about or you know, do some of their own research into other companies that might provide that as a as a Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think because the impetus has been on grazing animals, the life cycle is kind of tighter because the feces are spread on the fields that the animals then graze back over. So the life cycle and therefore the ability for that resistance to grow faster is much more confined within the grazing animal species whereas with dogs and cats it's a bit looser and therefore there's probably longer to develop a resistance because of the nature of the way that the dogs and cats interact with us and with the the life cycle of their particular parasite it seems like it's a win-win-win in as far as it's a win for the animal it's a win for the owners but also for the environment because if we can limit the amount these toxic substances are being put into the environment then that can only be a good thing for as we've talked about invertebrates but also other knock-on effects in the food chain Oh, 100%. Yeah. And also cheaper as well. You know, the research that they've done shows that if you are looking at targeted worming programs generally for animals, that can reduce the actual chemicals you put in them by over 80%. And these are expensive chemicals. So actually, if you can have a good targeted schedule of tests and not have to give the chemical treatments, then that's fantastic. And the other thing we talk a lot about is actually how to break the life cycle of the parasites mechanically rather than relying on the chemicals. So there's an awful lot you can do to break that life cycle with management, resting fields, poo picking and not overgrazing fields, keeping horses in stable herds, being really aware of where they might be picking up infection so that if you can prevent that, then you're not then having to go in and with the chemicals as well. So there are lots of different ways of, of looking at it and trying to get that chemical use down. That was Claire Shand of Westgate Labs talking to our reporter Sarah Strachan about why you should test before treating for worms in domestic animals. As Claire pointed out, this is much more difficult to do for dogs and cats as most vets don't offer a testing service. However, it gives an added reason, if you needed one, for why you should collect your dog's poo, particularly if your dog has been recently treated for worms. For the seventh generation's final short piece in this show on the environmental paw print of pets, here's our reporter, Sheena Mooney, who's gone online for us to look at the products and advice to help you reduce your best friend's paw print. How can we limit the effect on the environment of owning a pet? There are many things to think about and lots of tips available online to help. When looking for products, the website ethicalpets.co.uk set up by young couple Joey and Anna in 2011, seems like a good place to start. They admit to being geeky about the details, stocking only the most ethical products, and their range includes eco-friendly, fair-traded, organic, recycled, non-toxic, 
vegan and biodegradable items. Keeping it simple is a good tip. Thinking about what your pet actually needs to be happy and healthy. Old-fashioned toys like a ball or a chew rather than the latest electronic fancy gadgets. I found suggestions for how to make your own dog and cat toys from recyclable materials online. And also lots of recipes for homemade dog shampoo and other ideas for how to tackle fleas and ticks without the use of harmful chemicals. One product, called Billy No Mates, looked really interesting. A very small amount of a herbal mixture, including neem and seaweed, is added to your animal's daily feed, which apparently protects against fleas and ticks, as well as being great for skin and coat condition. We're not able to endorse any particular product, of course. Food is a key issue. There's a growing trend to feed animals with top-quality meat and fish. Pet food is now estimated to be responsible for a quarter of the total environmental impact of meat. This would be significantly reduced by using offal, chicken or rabbit, rather than red meat and fish. Dehydrated food is more sustainable too, taking up less space and packaging. Local independent companies will deliver a monthly supply to your home. There's growing interest in a very different source of protein from traditional pet food. Simon Doherty, president of the British Veterinary Association, said in a BBC interview recently that some insect-based foods may be better for pets than prime steak. Though vets expect resistance from some pet lovers, surveys suggest many would accept insect-based food. Doherty said it was essential to find food sources that do not deplete soil or water or fuel climate change, and he thinks insect food is a fantastic opportunity to achieve this. Cat litter can also be hard on the planet. Conventional products are made with sodium bentonite or silica, both of which are produced from strip mining and don't decompose. There are eco-friendly options made from wheat, recycled newspaper, corn and pine sawdust. For wood-based products, it's a good idea to look for the FSC's Tick Tree logo, which ensures products are made with well-sourced materials protecting the world's forests. Other ways to reduce the carbon footprint of pet ownership are to choose a smaller animal and, where possible, adopt your pet from a shelter rather than buying from a breeder. Also, more people are choosing to share a pet now, as shown by the growing interest in the website Borrow My Doggy. Henry Mance has recently authored a book about our relationship with animals. In a Guardian article this week, he states, Our challenge now is to live on a finite planet without jeopardising our own existence or the animals that we love. It requires a shift from a mentality of hierarchy to one of humility. Our pets should be the beginning of our love for other animals, not the end. He suggests matching every pound we spend on our pets with a pound given to conserve wild animals. Thanks, Sheena. Very useful. I hope this show has introduced our listeners to some new ways and ideas of feeding and entertaining your pets that don't cost the planet. As always, we'll include links to the organisations we've talked to in our show description on the Cambridge 105 radio page. Also on Mixcloud, where we're known as Children's Fire Now, and our Facebook page. And just remember, we'd love to hear your thoughts, responses and ideas for future shows. Write to us at seventhgeneration at cambridge105.co.uk. That's 7th generation. Tweet us or join us on Facebook with the handle at the 7th Gen Cam. Thanks for listening.